Part One, Chapter Two of Lillian by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part One, Chapter Two, Early Years. Miss Sher, as she was addressed in the office, was the only child of an art master, and until she found the West End, she had lived all her life in a long Putney Road no house of which could truthfully say that it was in any way better than, or different from, its neighbours. This street realised the ideal of equality before God. It had been Lillian's prison, from which she was let out for daily exercise, and she hated it as ardently as any captive ever hated a prison. Lionel Cher had had charge over the art side of an enormous polytechnic in another suburb. In youth he had won a national scholarship at South Kensington, and the glory of the scholarship never faded, not even when he was elected President of the Association of Art Masters. He was destined by fate to be a teacher of art, and appointed by heaven to be a headmaster, and to reach the highest height of artistic pedagogy. He understood organisation, the handling of committees, of undermasters and of pupils, the filling up of forms, the engaging of models, and he understood profoundly the craft of pushing pupils successfully through examinations. His name was a sweet odour in the nostrils of the London County Council. He rehabilitated art and artists in Putney, which admitted that it had quite a wrong notion of art and artists, having hitherto regarded art as unmanly and artists as queer, loose, bankruptcy-bound fellows. Whereas Mr. Sher paid his rent promptly, went to Margate for his long holiday, wore a frock-coat, attended church, and had been mentioned as a suitable candidate for the Putney Borough Council. Until Mr. Sher, Putney had never been able to explain to itself the respectability of the National Gallery, which, after all, was full of art done by artists. The phenomenon of Mr. Sher solved the enigma. The old masters must have been like Lionel Sher. At home, Mr. Sher was a fat man, with a black beard and moustache, who adored his daughter and loved his wife. A strict monogamist, whose life would bear the fullest investigation— he was, nevertheless, what is euphemistically called Euxorious. He returned home of a night, often late on account of evening classes, with ravishment. He knew that his wife and daughter would be ready to receive him, and they were. He kissed and fondled them, he praised them to their faces, asserting that their like could not be discovered among womankind. And he repeated again and again that his little Lillian was very beautiful. He ate and drank a good supper. If he loved his wife, he loved also eating and drinking. Now and then he would arrive with half a bottle of champagne sticking out of his overcoat pocket. Not that he came within a thousand miles of drinking. He did not. He would not even keep champagne or any wine, except Australian Burgundy, in the house. But he would pop in at the wine merchants when the fancy took him. He seldom worried his dears with his professional troubles. Only if organisation and committees were specially exasperating would he refer, and then but casually, to the darker side of existence. As for art, he never mentioned it, save to deride some example of continental, or advanced, or depraved, or perverse art, comprehensively described as futurist, which had regrettably got into the pages of The Studio, the only magazine to which he subscribed. Nor did he ever in his prime paint or sketch for pleasure. But at the beginning of every year he would set to work to do a small thing or two for the Royal Academy, which small thing or two were often accepted by the Royal Academy, though never, 
one is sorry to say, sold. The Royal Academy Soiree was Lillian's sole outlet into the great world. She could not, however, be as enthusiastic about it as were her father and mother, for in the privacy of her mind she held the women thereat to be a most dowdy and frumpy lot. The girl loved her father and mother. She also pitied her mother and hated her father. She pitied her mother for being an utterly acquiescent slave with no will of her own, and hated her father because he had not her ambition to rise above the state of the frumpy middle-middle class, and for other reasons. The man had realised his own ambitions, and was a merry soul sunk in contentment. The world held nothing that he wanted and did not possess. He looked up to the upper classes without envy or jealousy, and read about them with ingenuous joy. He had no instinct for any sort of elegance. Lillian was intensely ambitious, yearning after elegance. She saw illustrated advertisements of furniture in the studio, and of attire in the daily papers, and compared them with the smug ugliness of the domestic interior and her plain frocks, and was passionately sad. She read about the emancipation of girls and about the new girl, and compared this winged creature with herself. Writers in newspapers seemed to assume that all girls were new girls, and Nillian knew the awful falsity of the assumption. She rarely left Putney, unless it was to go by motor-bus to Kew Gardens on a Saturday afternoon with Papa and Mamma. She did not reach the West End once in a thousand years, and when she did, she came back tragic. She would have contrived to reach the West End oftener, but, though full of leisure, she had no money for bus fares. Mr. Sher never gave her money except for a specific purpose, and she could not complain, for her mother, an ageing woman, never had a penny that she must not account for. Not a penny! Never! Mr. Sher could not conceive what either of them could want with loose money. He was not averse, he admitted, from change and progress. With great breadth of mind he admitted that change and progress were inevitable. But his attitude towards these phenomena resembled that of the young St. Augustine towards another matter, who cried, "'Give me chastity, O Lord, but not yet.' In Mr. Sher's view his wife and daughter had no business in the world, and indeed his finest pride was to maintain them in complete ignorance of the world. Even during the war he dissuaded Lillian from any war-work, holding that she could most meekly help the Empire to triumph by helping to solace her father in the terrible troubles of keeping a large art school alive under D.O.R.A. and the Conscription Act. Later Mrs. Sher was struck down by cancer on the liver, and died after six months' illness, which cost Mr. Sher a considerable amount of money, lavishly squandered, cheerfully paid. Mr. Sher was heartbroken. He really grew quite old in a fortnight, and his mute appeal to Lillian for moral succour and the balm of filial tenderness was irresistible. Lillian had lost a mother, but the main fact in the situation was that Mr. Sher had lost a peerless wife. Lillian became housekeeper, and the two settled down together. Mr. Sher adored his daughter more than ever, and more visibly. Her freedom, always excessively limited, was now retrenched. She was transfixed eternally as the old man's prop. Her twenty-first birthday passed, and not a word as to her future, as to a marriage for her, or as to her individuality, desires, hopes. She was Papa's cherished darling. Then, 
Mr. Sher caught pneumonia, through devotion to duty, and died in a few days. And at last Lillian felt on her lovely cheek the winds of the world. At last she was free. Of high paternal finance she had never in her life heard one word. In the week following the funeral she learnt that she would be mistress of the furniture, and a little over one hundred pounds net. Mr. Sher had illustrated the ancient maxim that it is easier to make money than to keep it. He had held shipping shares too long, and had sold a fully paid endowment insurance policy in the vain endeavour to replace by adventurous investment that which the sea had swallowed up. And Lillian was helpless. She could do absolutely nothing that was worth money. She could not begin to earn a livelihood. As for relatives, there was only her father's brother, a board-school teacher with a large, vulgar family, and an income far too small to permit of generosities. Lillian was first incredulous, then horror-struck. Leaving the youth of the world to pick up art as best it could without him, and fleeing to join his wife in paradise, the loving, adoring father had in effect abandoned a beautiful, idolised daughter to the alternatives of starvation or prostitution. He had shackled her wrists behind her back, and hobbled her feet, and bequeathed her to wolves. That was what he had done, and what many and many such fathers had done, and still do, to their idolised daughters. Herein was the root of Lillian's awful burning resentments against the whole world, and of her fierce and terrible determination, by fair means or foul, to make the world pay. Her soul was a horrid furnace, and if by chance Lionel Sher leaned out from the gold bar of heaven and noticed it, the sight must have turned his thoughts towards hell for a pleasant change. She was saved from disaster, from martyrdom, from ignominy, from the unnameable, by the merest fluke. The nurse who tended Lionel Sher's last hours was named Grigg. This nurse had cousins in the typewriting business. She had also a very kind heart, a practical mind, and a persuasive manner with cousins. End of part one. Chapter 2